welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, what's going on, my man? Not so much, Steve. Uh, pretty brisk winter day here in Asheville, North Carolina, but always a pleasure to be recording the podcast with you. And today we've got a really interesting topic, I think, and we're going to be talking about pacing. And when people hear pacing, they generally think of sports, perhaps a runner doing a marathon or a triathlete or an ultra endurance event. And while pacing is definitely integral to those endeavors, uh, it's also really important to most things in life, whether it is starting a business, growing a family, and certainly a timely example that we're all living through right now is getting through a pandemic. So we thought that it would make sense to take this concept that is very highly studied in a sporting context and minimally studied in those other areas and really elaborate on how we think about pacing and um, what that means and, and where we're right, where we're wrong, and what it might mean for you. So that's, uh, that's my effort to tee things up today, Steve. So why don't you fill in any blanks and then let's dive right into the conversation. All right. I love this. This is right up my wheelhouse. This is pacing is something I've been trying to figure out since I was, uh, you know, 12 years old or something like that. Um, So let's step back and look at typically what it looks like to pace or the different pacing styles. And I'd start off with um, one is called a positive split, which is basically what happens when we go out really fast, we work really hard, and then over the duration of the event, we slowly, gradually get slower, sometimes dramatically get slower. But you're starting out hard and then finishing slower. The opposite of that is the negative split, which means that your first part of the race is slower than your second part of the race. So you're picking up speed over time so that you finish faster on average than you started. Then we have the classic even split, which is you're pretty steady all the way through. There's only minor fluctuations. You're trying to stay steady to optimize your efficiency at the task. And then the last one I'd throw in is what I would call variable pacing or responsive pacing, which is if you're, we're thinking of it in an endurance context, it's more responsive to the tactics of those around you. So sometimes it speeds up, sometimes it slows down, sometimes you start really fast and then settle into even pace and then try and pick it up at the end in a mad kick or dash to the finish. We see this in the same way and same context in the working world where we have variable spurts of energy and effort and then other periods of time where we're relatively calm and relaxed. So those were the or those are the four kind of big buckets on pacing that I'd see. What about you, Brad? I completely agree. Those are my four. I was gonna say the exact same thing. I I think one important piece to add is that these are not only strategies for measurable running, completing a project, writing a book, whatever it is. They're also, and I know we're going to get deep into this, really important psychological strategies. 
So what do I mean by that? Let's take the pandemic, for example. A positive split in the pandemic would be telling yourself that I've got to be completely buttoned up for two months. I have to do every single thing absolutely perfect. And then I'll be able to take off my mask, join my friends for a beer, and make out with who's ever around me and not worry. So you're being so uptight at first, you're doing everything at 100%, but you're telling yourself that if I just get out in front of this, I'll really be able to slow down, which in this case means relax later on. Even splitting would be saying, this is going to be really challenging. I'm going to try to get into a groove. And I'm going to do my best to just ride this out, knowing I'm not going to be perfect, knowing that there are going to be ups and downs, but I'm really going to try to be even keel. A negative split psychologically is saying that, oh man, this is exponential spread. It's bad right now. It's probably going to get a lot worse as it goes on. So I need to prepare myself and save mental energy, willpower, emotional energy as the race goes on. So I have it more towards the end. And then variable pacing would be kind of staying on top of the news and the latest science and saying, huh, like I'm actually really optimistic this month. I think things are going to be a lot better. But then there's a new variant or we can't distribute vaccines. So suddenly you sink back into more of that negative split mentality where you're like, ooh, I guess I'm digging in for six more months and being able to adapt. So when we talk about pacing throughout this conversation, again, there's a measurable physical component, how fast you're running, how swiftly you're moving through a project. Um, could even be in a relationship, like how, how much time you're spending with someone or if you're growing a family, how fast you're having kids, adding pets, whatever have you. But there's also a psychological component, which is how you think about progressing throughout an event. Again, that event could be a sporting event, but it could really be anything in life. Love it. So why don't we dive into, to tee this thing up, is a little bit of the science of pacing. And again, a lot of this is done in the endurance sport world because it plays such a uh, major component. But I think as well, this again applies, the science applies outside of the endurance component. This just gives us a nice framework for which to understand this. So if we look at how pacing occurs, the decision to speed up, slow down, even split, negative split. What it actually is, is very simple, is it depends on your actual experience versus your expected experience. So if I feel that it is easier, okay, right now during the race, we'll say, than I expected it to be. I tend to think, oh, I have this ability to pick it, pick up the pace, to increase the pace, right? So we almost enter any sort of performance, any sort of race, any sort of project with an expectation of this is how difficult it is. These are my skills and my components, and this is what I'm expected to to be out of it or get out of it. And that sets the stage. And then when I'm going through the project, it's okay reflecting and saying, okay, this is more difficult or less difficult than I expected it to be. So either I can pick it up or slow it down. Now, there's one other component in there that influences things, which I call like this psychological drive or motivation or purpose and reward, which gives you a little more leeway. 
So briefly on that is if if this is a career defining project, you might risk it a little bit more because you might dive deeper into, well, this is a little on the outer bands of my, you know, uh, limits in terms of the effort and experience I'm having. But I'm going to I'm going to get through it because I have 10x motivation or purpose reward. So that kind of gives the the leeway there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about how a positive split would result from that balance between experience and expectations? So what causes someone, be it in a marathon and then extending that out, let's say like a big project at work? to say that you know it makes sense to go out of the gate really really hard even if it's potentially unsustainable like help me get into the mindset of when that could make sense sure. or maybe it can't ever make sense so so two things that that occur there is one it well it all comes down to to risk taking there so it's Positive split sometimes occurs and can be actually beneficial to degree on occasion. Um, not a ton, but on occasion it works. Um, if you're sitting there saying, you know what, my expectation or my skill sets is at, you know, let's say level 10, but for whatever reason, I think it's my day and I'm going to be able to go to 12. And you're giving yourself that opportunity. And sometimes you might make it to 90% of the race or 80% of the race at 12 and then fall back, but you hold on so that you're still better than you thought. Um, the other reason a positive split more often than not happens is there is you have misconstrued um, either the difficulty of the task, thinking it's going to be easier than it should. You see this a lot in new runners, right? Or you've um, overestimated your abilities. Again, you see this a lot with new people or people who don't have experience in a project or you just have a great optimism bias where you sit there and say, okay, you know, I think I'm capable of this. I'm overconfident in it and it works for till halfway and then reality smacks you in the face. So the two things that come to mind when you say that, the first is on the risk-taking side of things. That's like, in a nutshell, Silicon Valley's move fast and break things strategy, right? Like I'm going to go 100 miles per hour out the gate and I might totally blow up. But if I do, that's fine because I'm willing to take that risk. Because if it does work out, I'm going to have this huge first mover advantage and I'm going to create an enormous company. So when it's successful, that's like um, you know our, our good friend Meb Kaflesky getting way off the front to win a major marathon. And when it's not successful, that's getting way off the front for 14 miles. And then there's a glitch in the technology or something happens and you're screwed. Um, the second part about the overestimating our ability, to me, that ties in really nicely to a topic that we we talk about all the time, which is consistency and habit change. And a huge trap with habit change is trying to do too much too soon because you feel good in the early miles. You think, oh, I've got this figured out. And you don't realize that actually it gets harder as you go. You need to conserve energy. So you're crushing it for a month. And then, you know, two months in, you totally fall off the bandwagon. Yes. It, to me, those two things is one, it's the short term versus the long term, right? It's almost, um, 
you're you feel really good in the short term so you over index on the difficulty that is coming later it's like the new runner the inexperienced runner who has never hit the wall before right you don't know what it's like so you don't you're not afraid of it to to keep you in check right, right. it's like the the 8 minute mile for a newer runner that feels great at mile 3 um, but doesn't feel so good at mile 23 exactly or you know again the analogy like in the case of a social media company it's all the growth that feels great in year one but then in year 11 when you've got QAnon proliferating your platform maybe you shouldn't have moved so fast out of the the gate you know it's very similar that's a brilliant observation there of not being able to see the long term um you know, the other part that I think is important there that you brought up, Brad, is the Silicon Valley thing, which gets to the benefits versus consequences of failure, right? So in Silicon Valley, if the price of failure is low, but the reward is potentially very high in the sense that it doesn't really matter if they fail at something too much, right? Which it is going- in Silicon Valley because that's the yep. whole the whole method is if you're an entrepreneur that's failed five times, VC firms often look at that as a good thing because you've got experience. Right, exactly. Versus, let's say, a uh, marathoner trying to get their one shot at a Boston qualifier, right? You're not going to get to try another marathon in for four, five, six months, let's say. Like, this might be your one one shot. So if you get too aggressive... You know, you blow your shot and then you got to wait for six months and do more training and hope that you're okay and don't get injured, et cetera. And it's not not kind of the, the quick turnaround or um, anything like that. Yeah, it's fascinating, right? It's like in, in institutional life, there are certain organizations that reward different pacing strategies. So we talked about Silicon Valley and no moral judgment if this is right or wrong, just an observation of how it is, they tend to reward positive split pacing. Whereas like larger government bureaucracies or longstanding institutions, it's the total opposite. They reward negative pacing because if you make a mistake and you blow up early, you're going to get buried somewhere in the bureaucracy and you might never see the light again. Exactly. So it, it's it's interesting dichotomy there in that Again, as you said at the very beginning, none of these strategies are good or bad. It just depends on the context surrounding it. And to come back to the kind of COVID pandemic, that introduces another, you know, variable there, which is essentially a uh, unknown end. So we've been talking about things with maybe um, distinct finish lines or checkpoints or time frames on when you're going to get stuff. But there's also pacing in the sense of when you don't know where the finish line is or the finish line could be moving, such as um, the pandemic where we have to, you know, requires a different strategy and a different level of uh, dealing with uncertainty and risk perception. Yeah, there's a really interesting article that I actually um, tweeted about like a week or two ago. Um Blair Braverman, a woman who is a champion, I'm going to get this wrong, like sled dog musher. So the person that raises the dogs and races them. And um, she talked about how, yes, the analogy of an endurance event for the pandemic is a good one. And at least up until recently, now we have a vaccine, things have changed. But before that, we didn't know when the finish line was. 
So she said, what we actually need to be learning from are not human endurance athletes, but canine endurance athletes. Because dogs, they don't know when the finish line is. They only know what's 10 seconds up the road, yet they're still in this grueling event, sometimes 10 miles, sometimes 100 miles, sled dogs do, and they have to figure out pacing as they go, literally, as far as researchers know, at least, without knowing that the race is ever going to end. That's fascinating. That's interesting. Um, so I have no idea on the science of, of dog pacing. But, <laughs> but well, I I'm curious what you were going to say about human pacing, because my guess is it parallels. I mean, all I know about dog pacing is what I learned from this Blair Braverman article. But go on, and I'll tell you if it's in alignment with what she said. Well, two things. I'll say that my dog on runs has figured out how to pace now that he knows the route. So it's pretty remarkable. But his pacing strategy goes out the window if he sees a squirrel. So something to be said for motivation. Um, but anyways, in terms of human pacing, there's this interesting theory and idea uh, by De Koning and Foster are the researchers, I believe, who figured this one out, which basically says that we have this kind of like hazard score or level of uncertainty. And the higher the level of uncertainty, the lower we're willing to risk outside of our, um, you know, push outside of our, our comfort zone or norms. And at the highest degree of uncertainty is when, let's say in a marathon, we're in the middle of the race where we still have a very long way to go, but it still hurts at a high enough level, right? Where it's, you know, 13 miles into a marathon, you're starting to hurt pretty good, but you still have all this way to go. And it's at this highest level of uncertainty and stress and fatigue that we often, the pacing decisions are, are most consequential. So if I'm sitting here thinking, okay, how does that apply to a place where we don't know the finish line? To me, what it says is, well, normally the hazard score, we'll call it, is very high for the middle miles, let's say from mile you know, 10 to 20 of, of the marathon. Um, when we don't know the finish, the hazard score is almost artificially enhanced or up uh, because we have no clue where the finish line is. So it says to be more conservative when you don't know where the finish line is. Exactly. So it would follow, and this makes so much sense, that even when you do know when the finish line is, the longer the race, the more it rewards being conservative. Because if you're only running a 5K not that much can go wrong in three miles. So there's a fair amount of certainty. Whereas if you're running a 100-mile ultramarathon, you have no idea how you're going to be feeling at mile 80 or if the weather's going to change or if your stomach's going to get upset. So it really makes sense to stay slower at the outset because there's so much uncertainty. Is that right? Yeah, it's all about the predictability. What can you predict? How far in the future can you look and say, oh, this is about how I should feel, right? In a 5K, you know, for that example, when you get off the line and you're a couple hundred meters into it, you know, you can pretty much tell like, you know what, I'm having a good day or my legs feel pretty good and things might change a little bit in the next couple miles, right? But you know what to expect. 
So yeah. So in a 5K, what I'm hearing, and this is a nice bridge to the other pacing strategies, is a positive split might make sense. Like if you feel really fresh that first mile, because it's a short race, the drop off probably won't be that great. You might want to go out hard and you know, I'm going to talk in terms when I used to run. So these these minutes are not the minutes that Steve would run for him, like cut mine in half. But you know, if you're shooting to run the race at a six minute pace, but you feel really good, you might want to try to clock a 540 first mile, 545 first mile. And then if your last mile drops off to 610, you've still stayed above your average goal by a few seconds. Whereas in a marathon, if you try to do that, the race is so much longer. So many more things could go wrong internally or externally. There's a much higher risk. So it makes sense to maybe think even pacing or negative splitting. And then as you go up to an ultra marathon distance, the rewards of being showing restraint, I should say, get higher. So negative splitting probably makes the most sense. Would that be... Of the three, and we'll get to variable pacing because my guess is what you're going to say is in a sporting context... Variable pacing makes the most sense, but it's also the most challenging strategy. But of the three, negative, even positive, did I get that right? Yeah, I think I, I think you're largely right. The only caveat I'd I'd add there is that the degree of experience matters to, to you know to a large degree, right? So if I'm a world class 5K runner trying to break the world record, then yeah, an even split is relatively even split is going to be the best because I am so dialed in on what I'm doing. And I know that within the bands, I'm not going to improve, let's say by 10 seconds. I'm looking for a one second improvement, right? But if we're looking at your average runner, your high school runner, or what have you, then in a 5k for sure, it a lot of times makes sense to to err on the side of being slightly aggressive in the hopes that today is your day and you get that breakthrough or you're able to hang on regardless um, and still average a little bit better than you would if you were totally cautious. So, yep, totally in agreement. It reminds me of a funny story when we wrote our first book together, Peak Performance, which for both of us was our first book with like a major you know, New York publishing house. And we got some advice from Ryan Holiday, who at that point had already authored, I don't know, Ryan writes a book every year. So like five or six books, a couple of which had been bestsellers. And he told us that launching a book is like running a sprint and then finding yourself on the start line of a marathon. And intellectually, we understood it, but I don't think we actually like understood it in our like souls until... I don't know, what was it? Day five of our launch week, we're like on an airplane looking at each other like, oh my God, like we are so just emotionally drained, physically tired because we'd been going to events, we'd been monitoring Twitter, you know, all these things, literally 24-7 having dreams about how our book launch is going that whole week and seeing our Amazon sales rank (laughs) in, in our nightmares. And then you get to day five and our publishers like great like books off to a pretty good start you know we wanted to have a long tail so let's let's like focus on the next 3 years <laughs> and we're just like if i have to say the word peak performance again more than once in the next 3 years i'm going to vomit um so i think that's a good example where we didn't have experience and perhaps we thought that we were using the right pacing strategy but we weren't at all And fast forward to our next book, Passion Paradox, and we took a much more conservative 
pacing strategy. And again, this is a mix of like physical, what we actually did out in the world, but also emotional, like really kind of setting that expectation that, you know, we're not running a sprint, we're running an ultra marathon here. And um, I don't know about you, but I certainly felt a lot better once once I had that experience and changed the way I paced. You know, um, I would agree, except there was something something quite crazy about dragging suitcases through trains, airplanes, on the streets of New York. Literally dragging our suitcases and the street. Steve's not exaggerating at all. Dodging tax. This none of this makes any sense. Dodging taxis. Like sweating through our button-down shirt to go do an interview with Ariana Huffington, <laughs> and we get there, and everyone like thinks that we're so big time because we're in, you know, Ariana's got this beautiful office in Soho through her company Thrive, and like Steve looks like he just finished his four-minute mile attempt. His glasses are like cockeye. I'm like, we're late, we're late, we're going to be late. Like, pull out your map on your phone. And then we get there to talk about peak performance. So, and we probably looked really good on the camera, which just goes to, you know, as an aside, everyone's making it up as they go and no one's as put together as they look. Yes, 100%. Um, All right. But anyway, so that was just a little, um, an example of of how you gain, gain experience and you can change your strategy. So, all right. So I'm just going to bring us back to the main topic here. So we've got positive pacing, positive split, excuse me, makes sense when the rewards are really high and the risk of failures are low. Um, Doesn't make sense when there's a lot of uncertainty or the rewards aren't as high as the, the risk of failure. Even pacing is a pretty safe strategy, let's say. Um, and can be really, really effective. If you have experience, it's even better because you kind of know what's going to happen. So you can just set your pacing up to let it unfold. Negative splitting or negative pacing makes a lot of sense when there's a high degree of uncertainty. The cost of going out too hard too soon is really great. And if it's just a super long event, and a lot of uncertainty and super long event go hand in hand because the longer something is, the more things are going to come into play. So all makes sense in a sporting perspective. In life, if you're doing the 30-day habit challenge, positive split your brains out because it's only 30 days. If you're doing the one year, I'm going to really focus on this goal and you focused on goals before, even pace because you know what to expect. If you're doing the, I want to minimize my screen time for the rest of my life, don't start with the 20-day all-or-nothing diet because odds are you'll relapse pretty hard. If anything, you want a negative split, take these small, consistent steps to gradually implement that new habit. All right. With that summary, let's get to what I know, Steve, is your favorite thing to talk about because it's the most interesting, I think the most challenging, and I also think the most effective form of pacing in both sport and life, and that is variable pacing. Yeah. So before we go into that, I just want to, it just popped into my head how bad diets are in terms of pacing, because we just kind of go all in from one to the next and then abandon the other. I I think that's an interesting aside. But anyways. Wait, um, can I just say something, Steve? This is very important. So this means that if I haven't had a carbohydrate in two weeks, and by accident, I have a potato chip that got like mixed into my steak. I'm no longer in ketosis. 
Oh man! Sorry, if we've got ketogenic listeners out there, I'm really working on embracing nuance and being willing to be convinced that I am wrong. But I still can't help myself from making fun of ketosis. <laughs> there, Brad goes losing all our listeners. Um, just just kidding there, or gaining some. Who knows? But I I think it is a fascinating you know understanding if you look at it through the pacing lens, like we tend to jump into these diets like all in. And then what happens is we like slowly, gradually lose our ability to last on that diet. So we're, we're like the marathoner who lines up and runs like all out the first mile just to get on TV, you know, for the marathon. (laughs) And then it's walking by the end. Yeah. And in diet and in diet world, getting on TV is like telling all your friends that like you haven't had, insert that nutrient carbohydrate fat i don't think protein's evil yet but i'm sure there'll be a no protein diet next year um and then totally blowing up when you drive by a dairy queen or something um for me man i have the opposite problem last night i tried to positive split eating a pizza and i totally blew up later and i'm still kind of feeling that pizza in my gut this morning but i digress (laughs) All right. Away from the diet so that we don't go too far down that that rabbit hole that probably wasn't going to end well. So, uh, politics and religion, three things we promised not to do on this podcast. Yep. My bad. We've done two of the three. I don't think we've done um, religion yet. So we'll try to avoid that. (laughs) All right. So variable or responsive pacing. So this is more in the context of when you're looking, we'll cover it in racing first, is when you're looking around you, right? And you're in a race, you're responding to your competitors around you, right? Where, you know, sometimes it's a little tactical because your other competitors are slower. Sometimes you pick it up and, and you know, have a hard 400 or hard mile in there because someone threw in a surge. And it's how to be variable and responsive, Uh, within the context because those around you matter now what's interesting about this is is that if you just respond to others right and you spend your time up you know that person surged i have to follow them up the pace slow down i'm going to slow down with them as well is if you get too far into that trap of looking around you're probably going to impair your performance Okay, because if you look at the pacing literature, the degree of control or seeming control over the effort you're putting forward matters a whole heck of a lot. Um, How they've measured this in the sporting world, and I've done this in the lab actually with a study that I conducted, is if you do a treadmill test exhaustion, right? And you have the scientists controlling the paces, so increasing the paces when they feel like. Elite athletes will generally perform worse than if you say, hey, I want you to be ex- at exhaustion by the end of this, this test. Like, you figure out how to get there and give them the ability to control the paces. So what does that tell us? The ability to control matters a whole heck of a lot. So when we look at this variable or contextual pacing, it's not about just being responsive to those around you, but it's being responsive to those around you while still maintaining some semblance of control 
over, you know what, I'm still going to listen to my body to degree and decide if I want to go with this surge or not, or make a move myself. So so what I'm hearing in, in very quick summary form is you're looking externally and internally in balancing those two things. So if externally people are really speeding up and internally you feel good, you stay with the pack. If internally you don't feel good, you have to have the confidence and restraint to, to keep running your pace. Or the flip side is if everybody's kind of going steady or slowing down, but you feel great, then maybe you speed up. So you're monitoring how you feel, what's happening inside and what's happening around you. Is that is that a good enough summary? Yep, that is perfect. So how do you like how do you learn to variable pace? Because I think about, for instance, this pandemic. And of course, variable pacing makes sense because we've learned so many new things. And it's almost like, and tell me if I'm wrong here, this is this, uh, it's coming, just popping into my brain, this insight that negative splitting is like the safe take on variable pacing. Because to me, variable pacing is actually the most effective strategy if there's a lot of uncertainty because you're changing what you do as the conditions around you change. Whereas negative splitting almost says, I don't have the confidence to speed up because I just I don't think I'm going to read my body right, or I don't think I'm going to read the surroundings right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna stay safe and like really you know keep the brakes on until the end. Where variable pacing says, wow, like I'm feeling really good. I'm gonna speed up now, but I I, I know I have faith from experience that I'm not gonna speed up too fast, where I'm gonna end up putting myself into a position of trouble. And again, this is both physically and psychologically the way that we think about long long term endeavors. Yeah, I think you know that's a that's a great insight there, and I think that matters a lot. It's that balancing of the internal and external, and understanding and and knowing where that shifts you in terms of what you're capable of. So, right? how do you, Steve? How do you coach people to? discount how they are feeling in the moment for how they might feel in the future with variable pacing? Is there a way to do it besides failing? So in the book launch example I gave, we thought maybe we could do variable pacing, but we blew it because we felt really good those first few days, but we didn't realize what a slog it would be and how tired we'd feel you know, a month or two later and still have to promote this book. It would have been better had we probably put our foot off the gas, but we just like, we, we had no way of knowing. So what do you do to someone that says, I am variable pacing, man. Like I'm not eating a single carbohydrate. This is so easy. I'm on day three. I can do this. And then two weeks later, they explode. <laughs> well, the key to good variable pacing is information, information and context. So this is the reason that you know, the better you get or the more experience you have at an endeavor, you get better at this variable context, uh, pacing because as the marathoner, for example, you know that if someone surges from, let's say, uh, 5.10 per mile down to 5 minutes per mile at mile 18, that, you know, in your current state or fitness, you could maybe make this surge last for two or three miles. But if it goes further than that, you're in trouble right? So you have to have like that context and that experience. And a lot of it is like getting the experience yourself. But part of it is as well in that book example, 
you know, uh, book promotion example you give you gave is we probably should have talked to other authors more so and gotten a feel for what is it like? Like, how long is this going to last? What should this feel like? Like, what's the importance of those first couple of days? What does the like month long look, the three months, the six month or whatever have you? Just like a new runner would say, hey, let's go talk to the experienced marathoners in our group so that I know what I'm I, I'm about to get into and uh, what endeavor I'm going with. Beautiful, other- man. Sorry, I got to interject so I don't lose this thought because um, Zainab Tufetchki, who is an intellectual that's just crushing COVID, like she's been right about everything and she's nailed variable pacing like she's been alarmist when everyone else was saying it's no big deal and when everybody else is saying oh nothing's gonna work she's saying actually like these vaccines are gonna be a miracle she's just been great and she's doing the interview circuit lately and i heard her on two podcasts and you know what she says as a sociologist she's always used pandemics as like the the cornerstones of her courses when she teaches because they provide such interesting looks at how people behave. So she's had all this experience teaching and studying pandemics from the past. That when this one came along, even though it's the first one of her lifetime, she's been able to variable pace because she has a really good understanding of these things. Sorry, I just didn't want to lose that. I did not mean to interrupt you, but I just think it's fascinating because it's like exactly what you're saying applied to something um, that we're all going through where unless you're, I don't know, live through you know, 1918, you'd have to be over 100 years old. Like no one, this is all unprecedented. And the people that have handled it best, both in the physical actions they take in the world and their psychological way of thinking about this pandemic, seem to be people that have really studied prior pandemics. Yeah, exactly. They have a, they have a template for what's, what's going on, right? And that's no different than, you know, we talked at the very beginning of pacing is about your actual experience versus your expected experience. Well, your expected experience is formed by all the information that you have, which sometimes is like real world experience of going through it. And some is, you know, historical or intellectual knowledge of understanding what it's like to go through something. So I think that's a great example in in terms of the pandemic is if you know, you have some idea or context behind, you know, studying some of the stuff, then you're more likely to, you know, at least have an accurate perception of what it's going to be like in the time frames and, and all of that good stuff. The other thing that I would add on there is that the ability to read your body in that moment to check, let's say, your internal situation is a skill that can be trained. So, you know, if we're using the uh, endurance athlete running, you know, analogy here, what we have is some people can check internally while they're going through things and say, you know what, I feel a little worse than expected, or my breathing is a little heavier, or my legs just don't, don't feel the greatest. And that's a sign to them. Others, well, they don't have that ability to check in very well. They'll just be like, ah, no, forget it. Like everything feels good. My breathing's a little heavy, but that doesn't matter, right? So having that calm rationality, especially in a moment of uncertainty to be able to check the instruments 
is a uh, important skill or component to it all. And I would say the exact same thing applies to what's happening in between your ears. So if you are experienced, you can tell when you're getting a dopamine rush or you're being fueled with excitement um, that is going to come back to bite you in the ass the next day. You can also tell when you're entering a rut or like a depressive thinking loop or despair, and that's going to come back to bite you in the ass the next day or a week later. Um, so it's, it's the same. Like you're reading your body for physical pursuits. You're reading your brain for psychological pursuits and paying attention, close attention to how you feel again, either in your brain or in your body, what you do about it. And then how you feel as a result of that over time is ultimately how you learn to make better reads and thus pace better. Um, we talked about this quite a bit in a prior episode, uh, how to make your brain a better place in regards to meditation and um, various forms of reflection that really force you and give you no choice but to pay really close attention to the signals that your mind and body are sending and to learn basically to separate what signals are worth paying attention to versus what ones you ought to let go yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's it, it, when you look at things like that as a skill, um, and that episode we did is a perfect example of diving deep into some of that stuff. So if you haven't, I suggest you listen to that. But when you look at these things as a skill that can be learned and understood, then it gives you an advantage in this kind of variable pacing um, idea or uh, pacing skill. And, you know, the other thing that I would say here is that the ability to not only look internally, but also do a check-in and look up, you know, and look around and see where people around you are going, right? In the running analogy, we'll say, is everybody going with the surge? Or is it this one guy who I don't know, who, who I've never heard of that's going with it? Or is it, Elliot Kipchoge, the, you know, Olympic champ, everything champ who is going with it and everybody else is. So, you know, that gives you context. The same thing applies when we're looking at the pandemic, per se, is when you, you know, take a glance around, look above, behind you, in front of you, and you say, hey, are these experts with experience and knowledge in this area going towards the route of playing it down or panic or whatever have you? Or is this like the random internet mob and politicians who don't have any idea on how this works? Going yeah. And as an aside, I think that's a largely how like the, how we got the pandemic so wrong is at the get-go, a lot of these experts were playing it down um, for various reasons and they were wrong. <laughs> um, and that's where, again, the Zainab Tefechki has just been like so incredible because she looked back at prior pandemics and she's like, wait a minute, like... Masks worked in 1918. They worked with SARS. This is respiratory. Like, don't tell people that masks aren't going to work. And don't tell people that masks don't work, but we need them for healthcare providers because that makes no sense. Um, so there's also a case to be made for occasionally looking the other way um, when there's some group thing happening. Um, but the flip side is also true. As we've talked about in the past, you can get addicted to being a contrarian for being a contrarian, and that doesn't usually work out well either. So stuff is complicated, Steve. Um, 
on that note, I do think making it simple, you know, if there's one takeaway from this that I'm getting, and listeners, I'd encourage you to reflect on this, it's probably worth for the various endeavors in your life, asking yourself what pacing strategy you think makes the most sense and having the humility to understand that variable pacing isn't always the right answer. If you have limited information or limited experience, then it's probably not best. Um, so, you know, if you're launching a company in Silicon Valley, you should have a talk with your founders. Hey, do we want a positive, try to positive split? What are the risks of that? What are the benefits? Uh, if you're debating on whether to have two kids or three kids and how soon to do it, have a conversation about pacing. Because like many of the things that we talk about, there is no right or wrong approach. The approaches just are. They can be right or wrong depending on the people implementing them and the situation that those people are in. So it's just a really helpful mental model um, to be clear about how to proceed with everything from small things to big things, but probably particularly big things. Exactly. I think that point is worth driving home in the sense that it is a mental model, right? And it isn't saying that everything that we're talking about is going to apply exactly to everything or there's one best pacing strategy. You know, the, what I get out of this discussion is that it kind of depends on context. And then what you want to do as an individual is being able to cultivating that self-awareness to be able to check in and see if you're still on the right pacing strategy or if you need to adjust and change uh, given the con- uh, given the new information or context that comes to fruition. Love it. Well, I think that this is a good spot to wrap up the conversation. And because we're talking about pacing, Steve and I have decided that we really like doing this podcast. And we want to do it for a very long time. We hope that this podcast is an ultra marathon where the finish line is we eventually become senile and y'all tell us just to stop. And hopefully we're not there for at least a couple of years. Um, With that in mind, it takes a fair amount of time to do this. We have to pay for software to do this. And um, you've probably noticed that we haven't had any sponsors. And that is largely by choice at this point. So as you might know from listening to other podcasts, many of the sponsors um, that for whatever reason gravitate towards advertising on podcasts tend to be companies with products and services that fly in the face of everything that we stand for. So without naming names, we've been approached by every single diet company under the sun We've been approached by a service that literally says that you can read 100 books in a year without having to read it all. And my favorite is a company that produces or mines or some combination of the two an algae that can prevent cancer. Um, You haven't heard us read ads for any of those companies. And if you're a long-time listener, you know why. If you're new to the podcast, it's simply because... Like our whole MO is that that stuff is bullshit and bullshit doesn't work. And we want to be honest with you about what does work. So we have decided to launch a Patreon page. And Patreon is a service that allows you to make donations to us 
that will help us cover the cost to keep this podcast going, to keep on improving it, ideally to hire editors and producers to make it better. And when you do make a donation, there's all kinds of neat stuff that you get from exclusive content to sign books to quarterly mastermind groups. So if you like what you listen to, if you've been a long-time listener of the podcast, or if you're brand new and you're just like, wow, these guys seem great, um, go to our Patreon page. It is The Growth Equation. We'll put it in the show notes. Take a look at the various tiers of donations. Um, We're hardly asking for anything at all. If you can afford to do it, please do. Again, it goes a long way in ensuring that we can pace for the long haul on this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.